Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 103, and my guest this week is Jer. It's just Jer. You know, Jer from Scott 2 Network. Jer who puts out records under the name Jer. Jer, who just posted a uh, really impressive cover, ska cover, of Flowers and You, which is a, uh, a song by, by my band. And uh, I was blown away by it. Um, we talk a bit about how they're able to listen to a song and all of a sudden start figuring out how to, how to turn it into a ska cover. And to me, that seems like a really difficult thing, but, but not, for, uh, not for them. It's, uh, it's very, very impressive. And you know what else is impressive? The bonus episode that is available right now, where Jer answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can, uh, you can access that over at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Um, it's a really good one. And uh, if you subscribe to the Patreon, not only are you just supporting the show, but you get bonus episodes of this podcast as well as a uh, radio show that I do a couple times a month. So head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to hear that and uh, join the Discord channel, hang out, join the community that we have going on over there. It's a lot of fun. Um, also, I want to mention that uh, that Jer has quite a lot coming up. Um, they'll be playing the Fest uh, this year, which happens uh, in October. And I believe there's still some tickets available for that. Scott Toon Network has Pick It The Fuck Up Volume 2, which is available on vinyl via Counterintuitive Records. It's uh, Scott Covers of Emo Songs. And then also, 
Jer plays in the band We Are the Union, and they have shows with Anti Flag, which uh, you could check out those dates. That's later on this year. And without further ado, here is my conversation with the wonderful, the talented, the awesome, the charismatic Jer. What's up, Jer? Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely, I appreciate it. We uh, we had a lot of back and forth, but we've made it. You uh, you've been on tour. What seems like just nonstop. Um, yep. How, how and this? You had like what, like two days home or something like that? Is that what you were saying? Yep, I was on the road for over two months. I got home, uh, and then I spent my birthday doing nothing, and then I had to drive to South Florida for a wedding. And I just got home like last night at 11 p.m. from that. So now I'm actually home for a good week. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, was the two plus month tour, was it all with the same band? So it was three tours back to back to back. Um, two, the first two tours were, uh, were with We Are The Union. So the first one was uh, we were opening for Eve 6. And then the second tour was uh, us with the Slackers and Kill Lincoln. And then I started doing the third tour with like my project, Jer, because I just dropped the record. And that was also with Kill Lincoln. So it was like just back to back to back. No time in between. Oh, geez. Are you someone who is uh, who like enjoys being on tour? Um, this was actually my first long tour. I've done two other tours before this, but they were like significantly shorter I enjoy being on the road. I love seeing friends and, you know, people I've met through music uh, throughout the years. And yeah, it, it's very nice to be home. But there's also a part of me that is very fulfilled being on the road and being able to do that thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure once the show gets gets going a little bit, we'll we'll talk about your first tour. But I, I uh, y- what you just nailed it. I mean, it's always I feel the grass is always greener situation, you know? Yeah. Like sometimes you start to miss home and you're like, oh, I, you know, all the things that are comforts when you're just waking up and you can go get your favorite coffee or food or whatever mm-hmm. else. But then as soon as you're home after like two weeks, you're like, boy, I sure wish I was playing shows right now. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's awesome. You toured with, uh, with well, I mean, all, all of those sound really great. But uh, the Slackers, that's um, the drummer in my band, Elliot. He's a big Scott kid. And uh, the Slackers yeah. is like his, the Slackers is like his favorite band. Yeah, they're a great band. Very, very underrated, even like in the world of ska. Like they obviously do very, very well. But I feel like they're a band that just is so tight in the pocket. The songs are always really, really great. But like they don't get talked about enough for how good they are, in my opinion. Uh, That show is at the Regent here in L.A., right? Yes, yes. That sounds about right. Yeah, I saw uh, through your Instagram, um, you were performing with them. You were playing a song with them every night, it seemed. Or, or were you playing mo- like a few songs with them? How did it that was work a, out? It was a few songs. So their uh, trombone player got COVID. And so he had to like hop off the tour and everyone else was testing negative and everything. So that band is is so interesting because they're all such like seasoned musicians where, you know, if they lose a member or two, as long as it's not the singer, they could just keep going. So they wow. just like get they, like the guitarist also got COVID. So they had like a fill in for a few shows. Um, there, there were some shows where, you know, like the sax player got COVID. So they just like continued on without him. In fact, wow. I think every member of the band got COVID over like the last few months of them touring, except for the singer. And they just kept going because they were like, yeah, we'll either just pull the songs off without or we'll just like get a fill in. Wow. So uh, with that opportunity, I I imagine you're you were already a fan of the Slackers. Was that like a huge moment for you getting to just hop up on stage and kind of be a member? 
Yeah, I mean, it's like really awesome. It's a thing that I do a lot when I hop on stage with bands, but like every time it's just like really cool to be able to like do the thing with a band that I have listened to so much. I was telling the Slackers, I was like, I saw y'all 10 years ago at Churchill's in Miami and they were like, oh, I remember that show and everything. I was like, yeah, I skipped my like high school homecoming to go to that show as I wasn't <laughs> that stoked to go to my high school homecoming in the first place. Sure. But yeah, it was like 10 years ago. So I, if you told, you know, high school Jeremy that 10 years later, I'd be on stage with that band. I'd be like, nah, you're lying to me. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I was touring with uh, with Eve Six. It was a lot of fun. You know, they're like really down to earth people. Um, the, I was very sick the first week of tour. I was like stomach issues. And they were like, we have kombucha if you want. Like they were like, <laughs> I kept coming in the room every five, like the green room every five minutes. Like, hey, we have some tea if that'll help. Like just like very like wholesome down to earth. Um, also with like a lot of bigger bands, sometimes they get like egos and, you know, whatever. But the, it seemed like Eve 6 was very like not like that. You know, they actually made the effort to hang out with us, talk to us. If they had extra stuff in their green room, or extra space. They would always let us go hang out with them, which, you know, some sometimes bands aren't like that. And they don't ever want to talk to their opening bands. So like any bands where they're, you know, being humans just like us, I always appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. They've had such a funny career with like the comeback of uh, I I feel so bad. Was singer's name is uh, Max? That's right, Max. Like his uh, his Twitter personality kind of bringing the band to uh, like back to the to to everyone's sort of like forefront of their mind. He's he's very good at at uh, at Twitter. Um, he's uh, we've we've gone back and forth a little bit. I, I, he's going to come on the show at some point. Um, oh, nice! But uh, but yeah, I really enjoy his uh, his uh, internet presence. Um, and he seems very grounded in in who the band is, which is kind of a a, a fun thing to have. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, yeah, the internet presence is is very very good. Um, I I also love how just unapologetically like. He'll just throw some like far left stuff onto Twitter and he doesn't care. And if his fans get mad, he's like, okay, like I don't care, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's kind of what I mean too. It's like he, he's just the, he's very real and doesn't seem to give a shit about what anyone says. It's pretty Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, How long have you been playing in We Are the Union? I joined that band uh, in 2015. So they had broken up in 2013. And they had played, I think Fest was like their last show they played. And then they didn't do anything for a year. Reed had moved out to California. So the band was all spread out and they had some show offers um, come up. So they played Fest 13, which was in 2014 because Fest is that confusing thing. Uh-huh. Um, and I that was my first time seeing them. I actually went to Fest solely to see them. And then after that, they recorded an EP, but the trombone player quit. So like they were trying to do like no trombone and they did a few shows that year. None of them like did well. And so Fest 14 was going to be their last show ever. And funny enough, a mutual friend of mine and Reed's uh, just kept saying on Facebook, let Jeremy play trombone and we're the union at Fest. <laughs> and I guess at some point Reed was like, you know what? We don't have a trombone player. Sure. Why not? And then I ripped the gig with them and she was like, wait, that was really good. Um, and then some more offers came through. And so we just started doing the thing where like we were able to fly out and I just started playing trombone and then we eventually recorded a record and now we're like a full-time band. So the band was supposed to break up and it was only supposed to be a few shows and then it just kept going. And you know, now it's where it is now. Oh, that's awesome. That's super cool. I, I remember, uh, I'm pretty sure touche played with we are the union because they did a run with 
shook ones and make do and mend. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that we hopped on two of those shows, maybe in like Richmond or something like that, like in the right. Virginia area. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I had thought that the band had stopped and then it was through following you that I realized there was, that the band was back together. So that's, mm-hmm. that's awesome. It's, um, again, it's, it sounds like you've, you keep continuing to have these really fulfilling moments where, uh, people need trombone players and there you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as long as I'm available for sure. And it's the more that I do the thing, especially forming my own band and just playing music in general, the more I realize it's really hard to find people who are available, a good hang, and know how to play their instrument well. And especially, that goes especially for ska because it's such a like unique style. And I've done many lineups with Scott 2 Network and Jer. And I've learned that, you know, you have to kind of have that vocabulary in order to be able to play the style as for any genre. That's that holds true for any genre. So. So, yeah, as long as I'm available and as long as the bands are good people, um, I'm definitely down to help help the bands do the thing because I know how hard it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's the more it's like the more dialed in version of uh, being a drummer. Where it's mm-hmm. where you know everybody always needs a drummer. People always need drummers to fill in, and also drummers are. Uh, I feel like if you're an easy to get along with person and a great drummer, you're gonna always be needed. Kind yes. Of thing. Um. But uh. But yeah. Now you're you're even a, a more specific uh uh musician. So yeah, you're you're gonna be called upon a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. So you know, this show is all about first experiences and things like that. So um, I guess well, you're from South Florida originally, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, did you have did you ever move away from there? Have you always stuck to South Florida? Uh, yeah, so I live in North Florida now. I live in Gainesville, and oh, okay. I've been here since, uh, since 2017. But you know, I've lived in Florida my whole life. It was at my parents' house in Broward up until I turned 22, and then when I turned 22, I up and moved here to Gainesville, and I've been here ever since. Is it uh, is it fest that brought you there? Like what what uh, that, was, that was it a school? Big, that was a big part of it. So school was the excuse. Um, because I definitely couldn't move out on my own, but my parents didn't want to like help me move unless I was going to school. So, uh, Santa Fe had a better, it was like a better community college than Broward college. And Santa Fe has like a 97% transfer rate into UF. Like if you, if you get a degree, you're just going to get into UF. (laughs) And so I got my degree. I was missing like one class that made it where I couldn't get into UF. But if I finished that class, I was like automatically enrolled. But at that point, I was doing music full time and I had no debt and I was going to study music. So I was like, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. And then I dropped out uh, and my parents <laughs> weren't, weren't happy about it. But at that point, I was able to just like sustain myself. And I'd been living here for like uh, two or three years. So it worked out. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Uh, so let me ask you this. When you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house, but something that you found on your own and like made you feel like you had an identity. It was definitely um, it was definitely ska music. It was the Digimon movie specifically. I remember a moment in middle school where I kind of realized I could be my own autonomous person because I listened to like that point. I listened to a lot of like jazz, hip hop soul but that was all like my dad listened to a lot of jazz and like soul and r&b and my sister listened like in a lot of r&b and hip-hop my brother listened to like exclusively hip-hop so those are all things that i adopted from like my family but 
when I first like was listening to like trying to find new music to listen to, I remembered specifically the Digimon movie soundtrack. I was like, yeah, there was some punk music on that. That that was cool. And then like I looked it up and I down I downloaded it off of LimeWire, and uh, that's when I just like did a deep dive of all those bands. Most of them are like not real bands or bands that only put out like one song. As it was in that era, like you know early two thousands, like everyone tried to be a band. Um, but like Less Than Jake and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were on that soundtrack, and I got super into those bands specifically. I wonder why. And I started <laughs> deep diving, you know, finding as many of their songs on LimeWire as I could, and then deep diving like websites, ska forums, and I just got deep into the genre through that. So that was like the first thing that was like you know like my own music that I found. Oh, that's awesome! Did uh. With those bands, like, did you find yourself attached? Because there's, I, as I know with ska, there's like, you know, very specific waves of ska that people connect with. Um, did you find an appreciation for like the first wave ska stuff pretty quickly? Or especially because it sounds like with your family, like liking a lot of the classics, you know, like jazz and, and things like that. Um, did you have an easy appreciation for like first wave ska? Yeah, I mean, I always loved all music. I was never the type of person that really stuck to one thing, even like back when ska was a lot more of the only thing I listened to. I still listen to a lot of other I still like kept listening to jazz and hip hop and all that stuff. It just like ska was added in and became a thing that I loved more than everything else. Um, But when I discovered uh, like the early like, traditional ska and two-tone i thought i'd had like gotten into it later than i did but i actually last night i got access to an old youtube channel that i have not logged into in over 10 years and i was going through the channel and like all the videos are privated so like you can't even find it but i saw one video that i made like in ninth grade it was about ska music and it was just like like a Windows movie maker talking about the sky like but i was talking about like the scottalites and like toots in the maid's house and like all of these like trad ska bands that i didn't even i don't even remember it personally but i'm like yeah by ninth grade i was already listening to like the traditional ska like a quite a good amount so so yeah like i think it was pretty pretty quick you know when you're like younger the distance from like seventh grade to ninth grade feels like a lifetime but sure. like you know like now two years doesn't feel like anything you know so but back then it's i guess it felt that it took a way longer for me to get into that stuff but no, i got into it pretty early that's awesome yeah i feel like uh with ska there's such an appreciation for if like someone calls himself a ska kid it seems like there is uh inherently an appreciation for sort of the whole genre as a whole you know like all together um whereas like i think if a kid maybe gets into pop punk they're gonna have a harder time connecting with you know something like like a like an early iteration of of punk something from like the late 70s or something like that because there's such a sonic change yeah but um from an outside perspective looking in it feels like people who um discover ska can pretty pretty quickly see um where it came from and have an early appreciation or have an appreciation for a lot of that early stuff and it sounds like you kind of had that going for you yeah and i think a big part of that too is because when it comes to the ska like the ska scene and ska bands they never they never really shy away from paying respect to the roots of the genre the way i found mm. out about the scottalites was because the aquabats covered a scottalites tune which is it's like i mean they made it sound like an aquabat song which is really funny it was very silly but that was like the gateway i had the same thing it's like rubik fish covered a special song and that's how i found out about the specials you know way back then and same thing with big d and the kids table they also covered a special song so there's never really a moment where there's a ska band or like you know multiple like bigger ska bands that aren't 
being like, hey, we know where this came from. We're going to pay our respect when it's due. Whereas like pop punk, you know, it's like, I don't know many pop punk bands that are like paying tribute to like, you know, the descendants or, you know, whatever, even further back than that. You know, it's like yeah, right. not saying that they have to or that it's it's a, that it's bad that they're not. Um, you know, cause music, the music industry is huge and like some bands just get into, you know, they might've gotten into pop punk in the two thousands and their first exposure right. might've been my chemical romance, which is absolutely fine. Cause those bands like also rip, I love those bands. Um, but yeah, with Sky, I feel like it's so like, you're going to learn the whole history. Like when you get into the genre very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah. It's like with, uh, I would assume with pop punk, there's for a lot of younger kids or even just, you know, millennials, whatever, like <clears throat> their intro might be Blink-182 and they're not going to yeah. go further back from that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what was uh, what was the first concert you went to? The first concert I went to was Less Than Jake in uh, 2010. It was after right after my freshman year of high school and they played at Supercon. So it was like an anime, you know, like uh, pop culture, um, uh, a comic convention. That's the other word. The, the, the main one I was looking for a comic convention. Sure. So, you know, my other friend who was into the band was into all of that stuff. I wasn't super into nerd, like that nerd culture stuff yet. Um, and so they convinced me to go all day. And so my day was filled with just like all of the nerdy things you could imagine, but Supercon also, they had a room that was dedicated to just music which I think was really cool. So you had a lot of bands of all genres. Like I saw a lot of local ska bands. That's like what introduced me into local music. And then there were a lot of bands that did like, you know, like a a Legend of Zelda themed band that played only covers of Zelda music and stuff like that. Or like a Mega Man. There was a, a Mega Man themed band also that played. And so just like seeing that was like really, really cool, especially when you're like 14 years old. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And what do you remember from watching it? Like, did you have that moment of being like, whoa, this is, you know, like this feels different. Like, uh, what do you remember from watching them play? Oh yeah. I remember like the energy from the crowd was really, really awesome. Being like a very hyperactive child and being told very much in every situation, like you can't be that hyperactive all the time, you know, like to go (laughs) to like a show where it's like the opposite where I wasn't even moving for like half the set. And people were like, you gotta move, you gotta dance. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then, like, I started, like the first time that was like ever encouraged, which is like really cool. And it was like all day. It's like people were dancing and moving to every band. I've noticed that's a South Florida thing specifically, or a Florida thing in general, is where like people will dance and move to every band. As I started touring more, I realized it's not as common to see people moving at shows. So um, that's something that I remember very fondly. I remember meeting this couple uh, I wonder if they're still together because they have this weird thing where they would go to a show, buy a shirt, uh, and then wear the shirt they bought at the show, get really sweaty, and then they'll never wash the shirt ever again to preserve the show. But they'll also never wear it again. That was like Whoa. their thing. So they like had a collection of shirts of all of the shows they went to, and they never watched, which is so nasty. <laughs> but also wow. like that was the first time. Like I was like 14, and they were probably like, I don't know, like 20 or 21 when I was talking to them. And that was my first time being like, wow, people can be, they're, they're just like happy. I was like, they're, that was like my impression. I was like, they're being themselves. They don't care. And they're being, ve- they're very happy. And I'm like, that's what I strive to be. Like, you know, like at that point, I think it set up an early precedent to me. Like who cares what other people think? Cause if they told that to anyone outside of that environment, 
They'd be like, what is wrong with you as a human being? Honestly, if you told that to punks now, they'd probably still be like, what is wrong with you unless they're crust punks? But like <laughs> to see to see that as like, you know, 14 year old, I was like, that's awesome that someone has just like found comfort in themselves where they don't have to worry about what anyone else thinks. They just do what makes them happy. I thought it was gross too. I was like, okay, y- y'all do that. <laughs> uh it reminds me there's a uh there's like a legendary uh older man in europe who i think people just call him like festival man i forget what is what they go by but he has like i'm not kidding you um on both his arms he has every wristband of every festival he's gone to Oh my like, goodness! And it and it like goes up to like his you know like his uh, above his elbow. So both arms are just oh my are, goodness are, are just all the wristbands. And you'll see him. You're like, oh my god, there he is! And it's like, yeah, he's and this guy's he's got. I mean, he looks like he's in his like fifties, right? And it's just like respect. Like that man loves music, and he's yeah, we- literally wearing it on his sleeve. <laughs> like yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um. Did uh well so when did you start playing music? What was the first instrument you played? The first instrument I played was trumpet because I was in band in middle school. So in sixth grade, I started playing trumpet. I was 2006, and I was not very good at trumpet for years. Like it wasn't horrible, but I just struggled because I just didn't have someone teaching me. I'm a, I teach music now, so I I, I can like re- like retrospectively look back at why I struggled on most instruments. And yeah, I just didn't have someone teaching me how I should have been taught. Uh, but that was also what gravitated me towards ska music was like, whoa, I'm hearing this music that's in a setting that's not classical or jazz, which is all you're shown as a band kid. So that's kind of what draw, drew me towards there. Um, I started playing bass in seventh or eighth grade. I took piano lessons in eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, I switched to trombone. And that was my and has been my primary instrument since then. I did it. I did that in college and everything. So so by the time I hit high school, I was already playing multiple instruments. <laughs> So with trumpet, when you say like you weren't taught taught properly, was it like because you were taking it in school, like a like a junior high or high school kind of situation, and just yeah, so yeah, a little a little into like my the the teaching world that I exist in. Texas schools do very well because uh, the way their schools are modeled is you take one of two band classes, either a brass or woodwind. The brass will be like trumpet, French horn, trombone. The woodwind will be like flute, clarinet, saxophone. And then a brass teacher will teach the brass class. Woodwind teacher will teach the woodwind class. And then they have private instructors of each instrument to come in to give the kids individual lessons. So whenever like I meet musicians from Texas, they're so good at their instruments, but it's because mm. they had the right people teaching them. Like my middle school band director uh, was a saxophone player. And so the brass was always weaker because like, yeah, when you're, when you get, when you're a band director, you understand the fundamentals of the instruments, but that's completely different than someone who specializes. Like I can teach any, I can get anyone to make a sound on trombone in like five minutes, but a woodwind player probably would need more time or wouldn't know how to say the right words to make that happen. And I think that's just what it was. You know, I had a saxophone player teaching all of the trumpets because we all, we all kind of did struggle. Like looking back at them, like we didn't have a lot of strong trumpet players specifically uh, because of, but the sax players were always really good in my school. So it reflects a lot on like how the, how you start out in middle school. That's interesting. Did, uh, so when did you, what, when did you discover the Digimon soundtrack? Like, where where does that fit in here with the story? I mean, I first heard it when I in uh in two thousand when I saw it in theaters. That was the first okay. time I like heard it. But when I like started to like think about it and like find music on my own, it was like seventh grade, two thousand seven or so. Okay, so when you started playing the trumpet, like you were already aware of ska music and everything. 
Um, it was the other way around. It was like a year later I started to actually discover. And like I listened to Less Than Jake and like the boss tones for probably a year before I realized it was a genre. I just thought I was like, okay, cool. Punk that's kind of groovy and kind of reminds me of reggae, but like, you know, with horns. And then I accidentally, the way I found out about Ska as a genre was I downloaded a Rubik Fish song, but it was like the classic LimeWire uh, mislabeling something. <laughs> and so I, it was labeled as a Less Than Jake song. And like, you know, after like a week, I was like, this doesn't sound like the same band. So I looked up the name of the song and, and found Real Big Fish. And then I was like, oh, there's another band like this. And then, and then like by looking them up, I think on Wikipedia, I found, like I said, genre ska. And I was like, wait, what? And then I, I clicked the ska tab on Wikipedia and like I saw all of the bands and I was like, oh, this is a genre. Yeah. Let's go. Let's 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 dive in. Like. <laughs> Uh, and so what I was well, what I was going to ask because you you mentioned you started playing bass and then you started learning trombone and all of that. Were you realizing that like these instruments that you've been learning are able to now be played in this genre? And were you learning how to play along with some of those songs, like uh, yes, with with those instruments? Yeah. So when I the first song I learned on trombone was a Less Than Jake song. It was not like the the conventional you know Mary had a little lamb or whatever. At sure. that point, I've already been in band for four years, so like. You know, that's not what I would have learned anyway. I was kind of just thrown into concert band on trombone. Like, eh, like my band director's like, yeah, you're talented. You'll figure it out by the, by, by the concert. Um, but yeah, the first song I learned was like a Less Than Jake song and then like a Rubik Fish song after that. And um, I started playing bass because I kind of wanted to form a band, not necessarily a ska band, but I knew that playing in a band like when I got to high school would have been really fun. And my logic, which I think was great logic even now, was... Everyone plays guitar, but you can never find a bassist. So I chose bass. <laughs> and it's really funny that I said that when I was like 13 in like middle school, because I think that's still tr- like true. It's so easy finding guitarists, but finding a good bassist is not as easy. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I feel like uh, most bass players and bands, especially in that age, you know, are people who probably played guitar and then were like, there was yeah. like already guitar players in bands. So they said, okay, I guess I'll play bass. And they're probably mm-hmm. just following the root notes of the guitar player, but not actually playing bass the way it, you know. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Death Wish Inc. For over 20 years, Death Wish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greek Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail body and more. Get 10% off all Deathwish music and merch in their store right now using the link deathwishinc.com/slash the first ever, which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for all items included. Again, that is 10% off all Deathwish releases and merch at deathwishinc.com/slash the first ever. Do you want a recommendation? Blacklisted, heavier than heaven, lonelier than God. A classic. So what was the first band you did then? Um, The first band I joined was called the Eskimos, but like ska, like Eskimos. It's very bad. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, you, you, you gotta have the pun. The pun has to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And like, we had like, so like they were like a reggae band and then, um and then we played like two shows as like we like kind of which i don't know why they named themselves the eskimos but didn't play ska um and then they like <laughs> they were like let's let's do ska now i guess it's in our name and then we like transitioned into being a ska band for we played two shows and the second one was so bad we just told everyone we played one show and then we broke up and then <laughs> after that i formed like my first high school ska band 
uh, called Funkman's Inferno. I, I oh, well, tell me about the tell me about the first the tell me about the very first show you played. Uh, was it like a talent show? What, where what what was the deal with it? Um, so that show was with the Eskimos, and that yep. one was um it was actually at the Talent Farm. It was just a local ska show. At that point, I had gone to like I think like three or four local shows. There was like the Supercon uh, show that I went to, and then a few of those bands like a few months later were playing a house show. And my friend told me about it. It was like, hey, you went to like Supercon. These bands are playing in someone's backyard, like the next town over our mom, my, my mom can take us. Do you want to go? And so then like, we got dropped off at this random house when I was like 15. And I like, was my first local show. And there were like 200 kids in that backyard. It was kind of wild to experience something like that as well. And that's where I started to see a bunch of bands. And then I went to another house show a few months later. That's when I first saw the Eskimos. And then I became friends with them and they posted, they needed horns. And I was like, Oh, I play horns. Let's go. And that's how I like joined. So Come the summer of 10th grade or between 10th and 11th grade, I believe, is when we played that like show where it was like the first show I ever played. And yeah, it was like, probably like 150 kids. People showed up to shows in South Florida like all the time, no matter how big or small the show, there was at least 100 people there. It was kind of cool. And yeah, that was the first show I ever played. People were dancing. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, did it, like, A, how did, how do you feel it went for you? And did you have, like, did it give you that bug immediately of, like, performing in front of people? Oh, yeah, I think it went fine. I never had, like, uh, I know a lot of people get uh, uh, anxiety or something about performing. I get anxiety about performing, but not in the sense of, like, if I get on stage, I'll, like, freeze up. I don't get, like, that type of anxiety. Um, because at the end of the day, I think part of it is doing marching band and you're, like, you know, marching in front of, thousands of people at some of those competitions and that very quickly like beat the anxiety if i can do that i can i can perform in front of a a hundred you know people in a small diy venue that's fine um yeah so then and also on top of that it's like ska bands especially when you're like any band and when you're like 15 it's not going to sound great so you know there's other bands playing and you know they're not hitting all the notes they're not singing in key and that's that was just the vibe of all the shows so i just never felt super worried um, because I was pretty solid on my parts and I was also 15 and the stakes were just so low. I'm like, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Whereas I feel like doing marching band competitions, like that feels so strict and, yeah. and, uh, and tight. And if you do a false note, everyone's going to know where, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, do you want to talk about like the differences between those two? I mean, I have to imagine they're, they're pretty. Yeah. They're very different. So like, yeah marching band and i also did like drum corps if you're not familiar it's like i call it like the dci is like the nfl of marching band it's like the the top tier like very intense um type thing but it's also a youth activity so once you turn 22 you can't do it anymore um but i did that and marching band and they're both very you're very well rehearsed so as long as you're you know doing what you're supposed to you'll be fine because yeah you if, if you mess up this one note everyone will know but you've repped that one note like over a thousand times mm. and repetition is how you build a consistency and unless you didn't have a consistent reps every time it should be fine so you know in marching band like the stakes are higher but you know you're given the time and instruction to nail that which is very different from like playing in a punk band where there is no instruction obviously when you're playing like in a regular band there's just like y'all in your rehearsal space practicing your songs that's all the instruction you get is from yourselves um but being a band kid it's like easy for me and like this is something i still do where i apply the same thing to how i practice both for myself and like practice playing in like and you know bands when i if i'm having an issue with like a trombone part and like say a show coming up 
I'll just run the trombone part like 20 times. And then if a certain part of the line is messing me up, I'll like isolate that part of the line and I'll like work on it. So because I've had that like type of training and that's how I go about music, I feel like it's aided me, but also like that whole world of like playing in bands is so different where, you know, you just kind of have to like also fit into the DIY thing versus like how I've done it being like a classically trained musician. Makes sense. Did, uh, well, what about the first time you recorded? When was the first time you recorded? First time I recorded was, um, recorded myself or just in general, I guess. Just in general. Like, oh, just I mean, general. yeah. Uh, I don't know so, if it was like, were you, were, it seems like a situation where you, you seem to hop on other people's things all the time. So maybe was it your band or was it for somebody else? Yeah. So I was actually about to say it was for someone else, but I, I just thought about it. And I, for, I always forget my band did an EP before we dropped our record. And that EP actually recorded before, like the summer before my senior year of high school. So we recorded five songs. Um, and that was at the talent farm as well. Cause it was a recording studio. And so we did that and put out that little EP. And then shortly after that, I recorded trombone for this band called Stop the Presses, originally from Miami. Now they're based out of New York and they're still doing stuff. I'm still putting out music. And then my high school Scott band in 2014. So like a year later, we recorded a, a full length record and put that out. So I was recording at a very young age. Again, like I was 16 when I recorded my first thing. That's impressive. Were you just playing? Uh, were you just playing? Was a trombone, I assume? Um, for my high school ska band, I was actually playing bass again okay. because we couldn't find a bassist and we had so many horn players through like marching band. We all formed in jazz band in high school. So like there were so many people playing like trombone and trumpet and so we had like three trumpets at one point. It was, it was overkill. Wow. Um, yeah, but we had, we had a bassist and I was playing keys for a little bit, but he like moved away for college. So then I kind of like picked up bass, like not even a year into the band being a band. So I was like effectively playing bass throughout that band um and then when i recorded with stop the presses it was trombone and then i didn't record trombone again until 2015 on one of my friend's songs it was like they were like a pop punk band and they're just like let's just throw a trombone at the end why not and then i just recorded trombone on like this pop punk song and then after that it was like when i started doing scott's network so there's a lot of space between the trombone recording what was the Scott Network stuff the first time that you were singing for for these recordings or were you singing in any of these other bands? I was singing in my high school band as well. I was okay. like, we had two singers, so we would like trade off songs and sometimes like sing together. Um, but yeah, on the first thing I ever recorded, very badly I was singing um, on that as well as on the record, which is still kind of bad, but definitely like passable. Like I don't feel ashamed of showing people. I don't, I don't feel ashamed of showing people anything like of my past. Um but yeah, so like the first EP is like, yeah, my voice doesn't sound good at all. And then on that, <laughs> that, that LP that we did, I'm like, it sounds all right. Like not, there's some moments that hit really hard. I think I did a really good job in other moments. I was like, eh. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, fair, fair. Uh, I mean, it's good that you can reflect on it and, and see at least the growth and not be too embarrassed by it. You can just be like, yeah, it's, it's early. Yeah, I mean, like, if anyone wants to judge me so hard on something I did at this point, like, 12 <laughs> years ago, I'm yeah, like, all on. right, I was literally, like, 16, like, yeah. when I did this, if you're going to judge me off of off of that when I wasn't even a fully developed human being, I'm like, no, okay, whatever, yeah. I don't care. Like, Absolutely. Uh, what, was, uh, what was the first uh, tour you did? The first tour was actually really funny. It was a Rubik Fish tour. Uh, with a band whose name I will not name. Um, but I had filled in for bass for that band. And yeah, it was like a 
I don't want to say a full U.S. It was like if you chose the most forgettable cities in the U.S. and Canada and played them, like, you know, we didn't play Chicago or Detroit or New York, but uh-huh. like we played Prince Edward Island in Canada and we played Iowa City and we played Dallas. Dallas and Houston were like the only two real cities we played, but yeah. like we played like. I don't even remember, like Oklahoma City and um, right. like I think Sioux Falls. Like there's like so like so many weird mar- – St. Louis was another one that was like kind of a real city that we played. Um, but yeah, most of the cities we played on that tour were so like in the middle I, of nowhere. The shows were really weird. Yeah, it was like cannot, a weird first tour. I cannot believe you played Prince Edward Island. Yeah. No one Tell- plays Prince Edward Island. <laughs> yeah. We uh, – Touche had this – like in, I can't even remember what year it was. I want to say it was maybe 2011. We had like a two or a week, maybe it was like 12 days between two different tours, and we were already on the East Coast. And we were like, "What are we gonna do?" And uh, I sat with our booking agent. And we looked at a map, and we said, "We won't go there." So we just we we booked it a whole Maritimes tour where we did like Halifax, we did Prince Edward Island, we oh did St. John's, we we did, we went out to Newfoundland. We played two shows in Newfoundland. Wow, it was, like, it was incredible, but. Um, uh, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to let, uh, I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about Canadian people for a second and, and say this, um, Canadian people, um, always, uh, misrepresent distance. It's always very funny. There's always yes. a thing where someone will say, oh yeah, it's like, uh, it's like an hour drive. It ends up being five hours or yep. someone will say it's five hour drive and it's two hours. You know, it's, it's yep. this thing that we always laugh about. Uh, but there's always this misrepresentation. And I remember when we were doing the ha- the the Maritimes thing, multiple kids in different parts of the Maritimes were like, yo, Prince Edward Island is going to go off. That is like the hardcore capital of of uh, of Maritimes or whatever. We're like, all right, sing. this is going to be great. And it was like the it was the weirdest show of all of them. Like it yep. was it was like a, a matinee show. I think there was you know I think we kind of played for the other bands. But the thing that I most specifically remember, and I want to, I was going to ask you about uh, the bridge to get there was so wild because I think it's considered the longest bridge. I don't may, I don't know if it's in the world. Definitely North America. I don't know if it's in the world, but it's like I remember it was like. Um, free to go there but i think it costs money to come back on the bridge i think i remember something like that i remember yeah. that they, us being like this is like a weird like i remember being a weird spot to get to i like don't remember a lot of that tour super well sure um but i do remember when we were going to prince edward island we, we felt like we were just like in a twilight zone episode it felt so off-putting and then like rubik fish play we played on the second floor and it was like a like an event hall like for like like weddings and stuff but it was also like it's prince edward island so it wasn't that fancy and yeah. it was on the second store of like a cake shop or a second uh, the second floor of a cake shop and yeah. the rubik fish was just playing through a pa it was like i was at that it was like 40 people paid and i was like i'm never gonna see rubik fish in a diy setting ever Yo, after this like yeah. kind of sick they sound very good like because like you know they're always playing like house of blues like venues like that so totally it's like a venue like that will make a band sound huge like just through the pa but hearing them through just like up like you know just only the horns and vocals going through the pa and like amp sounds i was like oh, this band sounds great like honestly yeah. this band sounds very good like as is yeah i feel like that's always a sign of when a band is really really good when yeah when uh when you could see 
uh, see them, you know, not in the element that they're so used to. And you're like, oh, everything still sounds so good. Like all mm-hmm. the tones are there. They're, it's not like a, a front of house person doing the work to make them sound good when they just yeah. on their own sound good. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure you're like me where it's like as as much as the show was weird uh, and strange and probably, you know, there's probably a, a low chance we'll ever go back to prince edward island i'm still psyched that it happened because it's like oh yeah not many you're probably not going to meet many people for the rest of your life that can say they've played there oh yeah absolutely there's so many cities like that where i'm just like yeah definitely did that thing um being from south florida i was on one end of i-95 and after prince edward island we ended up on the other end of i-95 so i'm also like one of the people where it's just like i think i've at this point driven on every mile of i-95 um which sounds like it all yeah. through mostly just touring and stuff like that. So I'm like, yeah, not many people can say things like that. It's wild how like traveling for music can can make you experience these weird things that most people otherwise wouldn't experience. A hundred percent. It gets repeated on the show a lot. But yeah, truth, truthfully, uh, starting a band is the best hack possible for seeing places you never would otherwise get the opportunity because it's not just you having to make the decision to do it it's it's a group effort and Mm -hmm. with that group effort comes um determination and and determination for better or worse uh can lead to some of the most extraordinary or unextraordinary circumstances but they're things that you're never going to forget yep absolutely (laughs) um so let's talk about scott tune network so when did you have the idea for this and and what was what was like the genesis of it um, I, I love, I love talking about how Scott's network formed. Like most things, it, it was not planned and it was just, it just happened where, uh, I went to school for music composition in an ideal world. I would work on like a TV show making music or like just selling commercial music, which I've done. I've done, uh, selling commercial music before, um, have yet to like get a, a gig working on a show, but yeah, just like writing and self-recording and self-producing. And I had a friend who entered a competition to, um, what's the word I'm looking for to have their pilot picked up by Cartoon Network. That's what it was. Just have their okay. pilot picked up and they got second place out of 300 entries. And like the first place is actually the Cartoon Network show, Victor and Valentino. So like there's an alternate reality where they won that. And I could have possibly been working on that show. Oh, um, wow. yeah, but so they got real close with their, with their, uh, pitch. And so I realized at that moment, I was like, wow, this is the thing I want to do. And I kind of have like those connections forming, but I have no idea how to create music. And that's something I should probably learn how to do like very quickly. Um, And so I downloaded Logic. I cracked Logic. um, I cracked a bunch of plugins and I just started messing around for like a month or two. I was just creating whatever I could messing with MIDI. And then my friend gave me a microphone and an interface because he like was going to college for it, had like two or something like that. And then I was like, wait a minute. I can record myself. Like I can, I have a microphone. That's a very terrible microphone, but I can record vocals. I can program drums. I can just plug the bass and guitar right in. And I owned all those things. I was like, oh, I can just record music. And so I started just recording whatever. And my high school ska band, like I always wanted to do like more covers in that band, but our guitarist didn't want us to do covers. And so I was like, well, I can finally do all those covers I arranged because I arranged a few covers uh, like on Guitar Pro and we never played them. So I started recording covers in my bedroom and that was just for fun. And I never released those. Like there's like three of them I like never released. And then I made a, a status on Facebook on Christmas in 2016 um, saying, 
if this status gets one like, I will do a, a Christmas cover that everyone will probably hate. And then I liked the status. And then I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And then <laughs> and then I recorded a cover of Feliz Navidad and put it on Facebook and it went viral. Like it was like half a million views. And Whoa. it was so bad, but I was like, oh my God, people love this. And then I did like, everyone was, I thought it was a fluke. I thought it was just like a, a one and done. And then I covered All Star by Smash Mouth. Again, it sounded horrible. <laughs> and it also went viral, like the same level. And then I did um, a few more covers and they were all like going viral. So after like five or six covers, I was like, I think this should be a YouTube channel or something. Cause like, this is like, it's not like, that's not a fluke at that point. And I just started recording covers when I could in my room. It was like, sometimes I'd drop like three in a month. Sometimes I would go three months without dropping a cover because it wasn't like a thing I did for income or anything. I just did when I was bored or when I wanted to record. And also, it was also good practice. You know, the more you do that stuff and the more you get your like 10,000 hours in, you know, you get better at that craft. So eventually it just started to take off. Um, it also helped a lot that a lot of bands shared my covers when I did them. Like the world is a beautiful place share. That was like the fourth or fifth cover I did. And they shared it and like I gained like like five thousand subscribers from that and you know a bunch of followers on Instagram. And then um uh, I covered a song from Steven Universe and one of the uh head storyboard artists shared it on his Tumblr. And then because of that, I gained a lot of like fans of that. So it's like I kept covering these very niche things and then I kept gaining a lot of fans, but since they're from niche communities, they like supported me. So I think that's why I was able to grow the way I did and have like a small subscriber count, but have like much more success selling merch, doing Patreon, stuff like that is because they were all like niche people. I wasn't reaching, you know, as other cover artists will probably cover a lot of big pop stars and stuff like they'll get the views, but they won't gain the dedicated fans uh, the way that I've grown. That makes absolute sense. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, in, in so many different ways, the more uh, the more niche, the more like specific uh something it's like yeah it's like if you covered you know lady gaga it's mm -hmm. there's a million people probably on tiktok doing different covers of a lady gaga song but um if you do uh, a, a diy band that um understands the importance of uh helping other people uh get their music out there of course and also there's the flatter there's like the flattering uh, mm -hmm. aspect of it too where if someone wants to put in the time and effort to to learn how to do a cool cover of someone's band like that's also something that you know pe people are going to want to share because it's it is really cool yeah and like that's like how i always viewed it in general it's like i just covered these bands because i like their music and it was like inspiring to me as well like you know i write i write emo music as well and i write indie and i write everything um and and it's also a huge inspiration to like what i write even if it is ska or not and so i i just covered these bands because i enjoyed them and i loved them and i didn't do it i feel like a lot of people start making content because they want to monetize it and even though i've been able to monetize what i do so i can live off of it that's not why i did it or that's not why i do it even though like i do monetize it now and sometimes i have to make choices for the algorithm you know like oh like i know if i like dedicate all my time to covering only small bands eventually like right now i'm suffering on youtube truly i'm suffering on the algorithm my my growth has stunted completely um big part of it is because of algorithmic reasons like that but at the same time i'm not going to sacrifice and only do like things i know will get clicks because that's like just not my vibe. Like, I just want to do what I love. Totally. And from an outside perspective, when looking at your releases, it seems like uh, a lot of the the like albums, uh, like the cover albums and things like that took place between 
2020 and like now, mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask if the pandemic uh, played a large role in that, in the sense of it kind of maybe helped you deal with with uh, being inside, like working on those and releasing those. Is that like a way for you to cope with the pandemic? So actually, no, I had a very opposite experience when it came to the pandemic as a lot of people. Like, obviously, I stopped touring, stopped going to shows. That was very huge. I got busier um, because I was already a YouTuber. I was already planning a lot of that stuff. Like I was already planning a few of those cover records. A lot of them were already in the works so when the pandemic hit. Um, I was already like two months ahead on my cover. So I just took a month and did nothing but play Animal Crossing. And then <laughs> I came I came back and I started working like the Cartoon Network cover record. That one I had started in 2019 and was just like starting to roll them out at the beginning. So it was like very good timing where like the pandemic started and I had like 50 covers that were like planned out and I already got it going. So I was able to just like hit them all like on the internet and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, at that point uh, we had already been working with counterintuitive records about like doing releases. I had a goal for 2021 of releasing 10 records in that year. Whoa. And, um, the only reason why that was like a wrench thrown into that was because like we did the, we are the union record. So I flew out to record the, we are the union record. And then I ended up driving across the country because it was, it was like right when the vaccine rolled out when we did the music videos. So like COVID was spiking and I was like, I don't want to fly. I'm just going to drive. And also like, I needed to take a bunch of stuff with me. So I was like, I'm just going to drive. But that was yeah. like a week driving from Gainesville to LA and then back to Gainesville. So it was like a week going out. It was like uh, almost two weeks coming back. Cause like uh, me and my partner at the time also, we went to like the Grand Canyon and like national parks and like things we could do that didn't involve being inside around other people. So yeah. that took like two months out of my year. And then immediately after getting home for that, I had to go out and record the Jair record. And so like, I just like in 2021, I lost like four months of time by doing that, which effectively made that, that 10 releases in that year scale back to only six as if six releases in one year is like a small amount. It's very much a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like uh, you and uh, my buddy Jordan, who does um, two minutes to late night, mm -hmm. you have, you both have that kind of brain where you can hear a song and then pick it apart and figure out ways to make it your own with like the, the identity that you, you both have for, the genres that you make like he he seems to always do like more metal leaning covers of things and you have this ability to find all of the ska rhythms within within these songs and that's like incredibly impressive um when you, do you have a thing so <laughs> a weird analogy so um uh, if you're i don't know if you're familiar with what foley is but like foley is like you know like the sound effects that are in movies you know like mm -hmm. door doors closing yeah. things like that uh being from burbank very industry town i have i've had friends that do foley for a living and because of that they have a hard time watching tv shows and movies and stuff because if they hear bad foley it drives them crazy you know yeah. like they have the ear for it to where it's like it takes them out of things which to me sounds like a nightmare but yeah. what i'm getting oh, yeah. at with this long with this long diatribe here is that uh, I'm wondering if when you hear a song, do you start instantly picking apart how it could be, how it can become a ska song? It's so funny because we'll be in the car, like on tour. It happened a lot. And like everyone was touring with kind of saw it happening, especially on the Jair tour. And I was in the front seat more is a song would be playing. And I would just start going like over the song, like start doing like ska drumming, like beatbox noises. And then after like 30 seconds, I'm like, Oh yeah, that'd be a good ska cover. Like that's kind of how I hear it in my head. Sometimes yeah. I hear a song and I'm like, 
oh, this will sound great if it was like in the style like Suicide Machines. Like I can I can just hear it. And then I have to like go and demo it out. And sometimes it doesn't end up how I envisioned it in my head, but it still ends up really cool. But yeah, a lot of the times I can just hear it and I'm like, oh, this will be like really cool. A lot of the times like I'll hear the vocal melody and be like, oh, this this would be cool if it sounded like, you know, like uh, the special singing this. It just reminds me of a special song, even though it's nowhere near that sound, but the way the vocals sound. That's kind of how I like dictate that stuff. Um in general, or it's, it'll be like kind of the opposite where I'll be listening to a band a lot. Like I was on a huge fishbone kick last year for like four months. And like every cover I did, I just tried to make sound like a fishbone song. I was like, like the wig, wig me up before you go, go cover. I did. It, it just sounds like party at ground zero by fishbone. Like that was the influence for that. And like, there's like some other elements to it that, that doesn't sound like fishbone, but overall it's like, yeah, sometimes I just get really big into one band and like, I love their sound. And then I like try to fit that sound into other covers. And sometimes something really cool comes out of it. Right on. Now let's talk about your the your record, the the J record that's now mm-hmm. out. Um, did uh, I'm assuming? Well, actually, I I don't know this. Did you play every instrument on those records on that record? No, actually, I did not. So oh, okay. I demoed the songs, and on the demos, I did everything. I played bass, guitar, um, stuff like that. And the the process of recording that record is the most weird, backwards. Everyone I tell this to, they're like, why? Um, and I'm like, because when your band is split between two continents and seven time zones, that's just how, that's, that's just the way you do it. So yeah. we demoed everything out and then I got, I bounced a click track. So we dropped the click track into uh, my producer, Reed, from We Are The Union. She's also the producer of the record. We dropped all that into uh, uh, Pro Tools and then we kind of just overdub everything. So like she had all of the stems, but we, we didn't use any of the demo stems except for like, the synth on the fourth track was the demo stem. The outro of the second track was the demo stem. And I think that's it. I think everything else on the record was like, we just re-recorded. And then from there, I went out to California. I recorded all of the trombone over again, because she has way nicer equipment in a very nice studio than I do. Um, I also like, at the t- I got, I've gotten better at it. At the time, I tracking vocals was hit or miss. Sometimes I'd track vocals and they'd sound very good. Sometimes I'd be mixing my own cover and I'm like, why was I so far from the mic? Like, I just don't think about those things. Like, I think about them more now because, like, it makes a huge difference. But I, I needed someone not only to make sure I'm tracking the vocals well, but making sure I'm getting the best performance. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm, record, if I'm recording myself, I'm like, I guess that's fine or whatever. But if I'm, like, in a studio and I record something, like, like Reed, she was there to be like, you can do better. Like that can sound better. The, like the, It sounded weird at this part. So like the best performances came out of all of that record because she was there to do that, which is why I wanted to go work with like a producer. Cause I could have recorded it myself and saved the money, but like, you know, I want the, I require, I cared about the quality, not necessarily like making it, you know, to save money, which I think was like, it paid off very well. That's why the record sounds as good as it does. Um, but then after that, my drummer lives in Tampa so he went into a studio in Tampa and just recorded his drums to the demos because I bounced like a version of all my demos without drums so he can record to them. And then that producer who recorded the drums uh, bounced the stems and sent them to us. So halfway through tracking the record, we got the drums and we were like, OK, cool. We just dropped all the drums into the project. So halfway through, the it went from like MIDI drums to like you know, nice studio, like unedited or anything like, you know, like unmixed, but whatever, we had like the real drums. And at that point I was like halfway through vocals, the trombone was done and I got almost done with the vocals. We had like two days left. So Reed was like, you want to record bass too? Cause originally I, I wasn't recording the bass, but in Gainesville, but since mm-hmm. we had so much extra time and I was ahead, 
I, I recorded like all of the bass in like two hours. I basically, it was almost all one take. Cause you know, I've, I've demoed the songs. Like that's why I tell people they should demo as much as possible because, because I've demoed some of those songs two or three times, the, the final tracking of it, it was like one take for most of it because I was already familiar with the songs that and like I, I record for a living. So maybe I do takes a lot faster than the regular person. Um, but yeah, so then after that, um, we were pressed on time for mixing because vinyl turnaround, the record was supposed to come out last year and we missed our vinyl deadline by a week. And the turnaround oh. went from September 2021 to February 2022. Uh, um, and at that yeah. point, we were like, this record's not coming out this year. Let's just take our time mixing it. And that's why I came out like in June. It was supposed to come out almost a year earlier than that. It was supposed to come out like, like early October. So uh, vinyl really messed us up. But at that point, Reed, she was like, there's some like kind of emo guitar. I use a lot of jazz chords, a lot of emo sounding chords and stuff like that. And she was like, I can figure those out, but that's not my like forte it'd be a lot quicker if you just recorded all of that so i recorded like 40 percent of the guitars on the record basically every time you hear like a seven chord or a nine chord or any like emo guitar sounds that was me playing that and then all of the ska guitar was reed and then if it was like straight up like power chords or like you know like regular chords that was also reed so it's a very like uh very mismatched uh who's playing what uh sax player from the band abracadabra who lives in the uk um, recorded sax remotely. Um, my friend Doug Perry, who's a Twitch streamer who does like percussion stuff, recorded the percussion remotely. Esteban from Matamoska, as well as like basically plays keys on every ska record these days. Um, he recorded keys remotely from Oregon. So like a lot of people also remotely recorded stuff and sent it in. So it's the most like Frankenstein, like not conventional <laughs> uh, record to ever be produced, probably. Um, two questions. One, did your relationships with a lot of these people start because of Scott network? Yeah. Um, so I, I knew about Esteban, basically like Esteban, I knew through Ska in general and Reed, obviously I know through, we are the union and Woody, uh, my drummer, he's someone that I've just known through Ska. Like he played in a lot of bands out of Tampa and we like had known of each other. I've seen his bands before, but then like we just started becoming friends more uh, just like through the Internet. I'm not even entirely sure like what at what point we became like closer friends. But he was like, hey, I got a recording set up. Do you want to uh, if you need drums? And I was like, actually, yes, you're a very great drummer. He's also one of the only drummers that understands how to drum like traditional ska as well as like hardcore and emo. And I'm like, great, because I mix a lot of those together a lot. There's like three drummers, I think, in the world who know how to do both of those very well. So I was like. <laughs> Your per and he's also like trained in jazz drumming, so like he'd see like went to college uh, for that. So I'm like, yes, you 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 understand everything I'm trying to do. So like, I want you drumming for my stuff. And other than that, like yeah, like Doug, the percussionist, I know through Twitch. I was just you know I followed him on Twitch one day and I commented, and people in the chat were like, holy shit, Scottu Network. And then Doug was <laughs> like, wait, Scottu Network's here? And I was like, wait, you know who I am? Like what? <laughs> so yeah, it was a lot of them were like uh, connections I made through doing like you know being a content creator online. Oh, that's awesome. That's super cool. And then the other question is, so you said you've now toured for this, right? You did for the the Jer yeah. record. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So who's playing with you live? Like, how do you figure that out? Um, live is really interesting because being a band that is split up everywhere and everyone yeah. else also plays in different bands. Um, I've kind of gone down the route of the way being a trained musician and like the world of like basically everywhere else outside of punk where it's like I just get session players. Um, so like Woody is my go to drummer. Um, always trying to get Woody there. Woody also can run tracks and play to a click, which is really cool. 
So if we like we had tracks running for like keys because we, we just couldn't have a keyboard player it wasn't in the budget. Um, but w- working with low budgets and having session players, making sure everyone gets paid is like very tricky. So it just depends on who's available. Like Ricky from We're the Union lives in uh, Ypsilanti near Detroit. And then uh, Robbie from the band uh, Safe Face also does Get Tough. They live in um, Lansing. And so I was like, all right. So the Kill Lincoln Horns offered to play. So like, you know, they're with Kill Lincoln, but also playing horns in my project. And then Woody just drove up, like rented the van and drove up and then met up with us. And since the tour started in Chicago, I was like, the band is based out of the Midwest. After the tour, I can drive everyone home and we don't have to fly anyone out, which is like, that was like the goal. Like, cause once you start flying people, that's when like, you know, money becomes, I'm sure you already understand, like money becomes very tricky. And so like, we know we have a tour, we have some other tours coming up and like, I have a West coast lineup kind of already built where like the goal is like fly no more than like one or two people out at all times. So I have like go-to musicians for the West coast, go-to for the East coast. And then like a few, like in the Midwest as well. And basically it's like whoever is available and how we can make it work. Flying on the East coast is a little cheaper, especially like I've noticed flying in and out of Florida is very cheap. So if I'm ever doing things down here, it's like easier to do, but like, especially Mm. like West coast, like once you get across like the mountains, it's like, God, flying any uh, across the country from anywhere is so expensive. So to me, it was just easier to just get some go-to musicians on the on the West Coast who can do everything. I wonder what that. I wonder what the reasoning is. I'm wondering if it's just because Florida, especially South Florida, is such like a uh, a tourist spot that maybe yeah. deal with airlines. They just consider it like you know. Uh, yeah, I think every Florida airport, at least like you know Fort Lauderdale, definitely Miami and Orlando. And I was just in the Tampa airport returning the rental, and I noticed how big it was too. I think they're all hubs. And like Mm. when I learned how the hub thing works, where it's like, you know, if there's if you're going to a certain airport, but only Delta flies out of there, if those Delta flights are full, it's going to be expensive. And same thing, it's like not many planes like it not not many planes can even do the cross country thing. That's such a long flight to do. So it's like but with Florida, since every airline is like flying to Florida and from Florida, it's easier to find other options. Like Delta could be sold out. But like there's JetBlue and Southwest and American and Spirit and United, like every other airline is flying out of those airports. Totally, totally. Um, Well, shit. let me hit you with the last question, which is when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Um, so the first time I ever felt that was, uh, the first time I quit my job, uh, my job doing, uh, making bacon. That was my literal job was working at Metro diner in Gainesville. And I made bacon because they sold a lot of bacon being a diner and doing breakfast. And when I wasn't doing that, I was like prep cooking, but honestly it was mostly just making bacon and I hated it. And they started cutting my hours. So I did a cover of the me channel theme and that cover went absurdly viral like i thought my videos before that went viral that one was absurd the numbers it did and i gained like fifty thousand subscribers from that one and my facebook page gained like fifty thousand likes overnight i I made the facebook page and then the next day like it went viral like i was like beautiful timing and my patreon grew from like i think it was at like eighty dollars a month to like 500 a month like overnight and i was like that's my rent and utilities. Cause like Gainesville, I mean, back then Gainesville was like way cheaper. Um, sure. So I was like, yeah, I was like in between that and like teaching, cause I was also like teaching marching band. Um, I was like, yeah, I can afford to just be a musician. So I quit my job and I didn't know if I could continue doing it once like marching season ended. I don't know if I need to pick up a second job again, but by the time marching season ended, I was making like more than enough to sustain myself. And I was starting to take on commissions. So I was like, 
yeah, I'm like a full-time musician. And that's the first time in my life. It was like, that was like 2018 when I had quit. And so like going into 2019, that was the first time I was like, yeah, I'm like a full-time musician and living off of my craft. That's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, well, I appreciate you hanging out with me today. This is, this is a lot of fun. I hope, uh, I hope our paths cross. I know you mentioned that, uh, that, um, you'd seen us at the talent farm many, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I hope we like cross paths officially sometimes, uh, sometime soon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be traveling around a lot. So like, I'm sure it'll happen in like the next few months or so. I really hope so. I really hope so. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Jer for coming on and hanging out. And thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode. If you want a little more Jer, go to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to hear that. And if you have not subscribed to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're enjoying this, please do so. It helps the show a lot. Leaving a positive rating and review means so much. Um, Thank you for your time. And I will see you next week on Monday with a brand new radio hour. And then Wednesday with episode 104. See you then. Bye-bye.